Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. No one enjoys suffering. Anybody? I see no hands. You like to suffer on the beach? Yeah, okay, that's great. <laughs> I need another cool drink here. Oh, pool boy. Yeah. <clears throat> Most people across the globe recognizing, however, that suffering is normal in this fallen world. Western culture, on the other hand, so has glo- so glorified the values of safety, comfort, and convenience that anything less is now regarded as something akin to to a human rights violation. The idea that people have a right to a secure, healthy life is an attitude that has unfortunately bled into the Christian church. The extreme example of this is called what? Six million dollar jets. Gold-plated faucets. The teachers teach what? Health and wealth. Prosperity teaching, right? which communicates that God wants Christians to be wealthy, healthy, and happy all the time, time, time. Even more among biblically orthodox Christians, however, there is the pernicious and unspoken idea that God somehow promises to protect us from suffering. In addition to this natural aversion to pain and difficulty, many Christians have acquired that notion that hardship should not even ever cross our paths. The result is an absence of teaching on the presence and role and benefits of suffering in the Christian life and the crises of faith that accompany that suffering. Many believers are wondering what's next in light of things like the Supreme Court decision of the United States, decision legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states, and the resulting impact of that decision. We can be certain that this decision will indeed and has shown far-reaching consequences. But can we know what they will be? So what can we expect the future to hold? The rapid rate of cultural revolution in our nation may be paving the way toward increasing demands for Christians to abandon their beliefs. In all likelihood, the future will include some form of persecution, suffering, and trial. Now, you may think that this is just Chicken Little saying that the sky is falling. Persecution just because of a decision made by the Supreme Court? Eh. Now, I have no attention of being an alarmist, doom and gloom. I trust in Christ and am at times quite fearless concerning the persecution that comes my way. But at the same time, we need to remind ourselves concerning the fact that God is in control no matter what takes place in our fallen world. There's a theologian by the name of Leo Hobson, and he rightly points out some issues that occur. Um, Are we having a problem with our overhead today? I'm not seeing it on the back wall. That's why I'm asking. Here we go. Well, Theo Hobson has three phases of cultural revolution, which are something that was nearly universal condemned is now universally celebrated. Next would be the fact that something which was celebrated is condemned. And then finally, those who refuse to celebrate are condemned themselves. It seems viable that the first and second phases have already taken place, and we've already seen examples of condemnation of those who refuse to celebrate the new morality. 
Given how rapidly this moral revolution has taken place, there is no reason to expect that it will slow down. Bolstered by a victory that's celebrated to great fanfare in the media and in the federal government, cultural change will continue at a breakneck speed. And it seems quite realistic to expect that those who refuse to endorse the new morality and insist that the emperor has no clothes, they will be condemned and ostracized at an equally rapid rate. Now, I've given you some quotes on your handout. Uh, there's one by Justice Samuel Alito, who was a dissenting member of the court, who offered that same observation about the decision. Look at that quote there. It will be used to vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. In the course of its opinion, the majority of the Supreme Court compares traditional marriage laws to laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans and women. The implication of this analogy will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. Justice Clarence Thomas, in the next quote, this decision and the way in which it came to pass has potentially ruinous consequences for religious liberty. Now that the law of the land is in direct contradiction to the scriptural view of marriage, those who hold to outdated views can in all likelihood will be vilified. There's a, a recent issue of Table Talk magazine where uh, Vodi uh, Bakum says, today Christianity is seen as a threat to freedom or even a pathological condition. Schools accept the theory of evolution, but view the idea of creation as a dangerous myth. Ideas are dangerous. Speech is dangerous. Speech is violent. If you listen to what those who are antagonistic to the Christian faith say, you will hear echoes of those sentiments. Keeping on with uh, Vodi's quote, judges see the biblical view of sodomy as hate speech. In fact, various State Departments of Child Protective Services have at times listed regular church attendance as one of the hallmarks of abusive parenting. And we have seen that in this community. In the new morality, Christians, view, Christians' views on a growing number of important issues are being increasingly seen as bigoted and immoral. Look at this quote from a law professor at the University of California, not a Christian man. He says, if I were a Christian, a conservative Christian, which I most certainly am not, I would be very reasonably fearful, not just as to tax exemptions, and frankly, they can take my money, I don't care, but as to a wide range of other programs, fearful that within a generation or so, my religious beliefs would be treated the same way as racist religious beliefs are. There is, first letter, R, there is a reality of suffering. The Bible regards suffering as part of this fallen world. What do, what do we mean by that? What do we mean that there's a reality of universal suffering? Why is that the case? Why can we say that that's a biblical standard? Because of, because of sin, because of the fall, right? Immediately after the fall, you see the repercussions of the rebellion of our parents, right? What are the indications that the world will inflict suffering upon us? Think about Genesis chapter 3. What are those early markers? Exactly. 
It's exactly what God had said to Adam and Eve. Yes, as a result of sin, what was going to happen? Death. What else? Man must work. The not only man must work was actually a creation ordinance. Work is not part of the curse. But the frailty, the futility, the difficulty of work being multiplied is part of that. What else? Women will suffer in childbirth. The earth is actually rebelling against people and fights against the nurturing, the fulfillment of the creation mandate. That's the biblical reality. We now can cure and prevent many diseases, but that doesn't stop both Christians and non-Christians from developing cancer or having heart attacks. The sinfulness of men and women adds human violence and oppression to this dark picture. So that crime, war, and oppression are part of life everywhere on earth. Think about the two passages from Job. Job 5.7. For man is born for trouble as what? As sparks fly upward, right? The other passage in Job 14. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of what? Turmoil, sorrow, troubles. This is universal. Now... Let's define suffering because I think that's extremely important. What is suffering, trial, and persecution not identified as in the scriptures? When we look at the biblical command to suffer well, what are we not being commanded to suffer well about? What should we expect to suffer if we're partaking in? Well, the passage in Peter, the first passages in Peter, 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better if God should will so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for what? Doing what is wrong. 1 Peter 4.17, Peter says to the church, Make certain that no one suffers as a troublesome meddler. Now you're meddling. Or as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, Right? There's a difference between alternate opinions and persecutions. And we as Christians need to be careful to not see a boogeyman under every rock. Look at this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Certainly not a bastion of Christian beliefs. In 1838, he said this, Let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted whenever I am contradicted. We live in a pluralistic society. People are going to have other opinions. That's great. That's an occasion for us to have exchange, conversation, to be persuasive. All right? Just because someone has a different opinion does not mean that we are being persecuted or suffering. It's a great opportunity, and we're going to talk about that more when we get to the letter R. How do we respond to suffering? Well, what suffering is? In our study of the troubles of the Corinthian church, addressed through Paul, we will be considering the suffering that encompasses all trials, difficulties, and persecution that come to us in this life. We face hardships every day from without and from within. From without us, our home, our church, and from our own heart. Sometimes these hardships are specifically related to our calling as God's children and not just a result of walking this veil of tears. There's common grace, and there's common disgrace. Christians and non-Christians alike will suffer hardships. It's part of God's design. Now, 
Let's turn in our Bibles to the letters to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 8 through 9, the apostle, based on his personal experience, gives a partial list of his troubles. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 uh, and 9. Somebody read that nice and loud for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We're struck down but not destroyed. Even history's greatest evangelist and missionary was not immune to sufferings, trials, and persecution. Christians are being persecuted all over the world for following Jesus. Right? So you have two things. You have common disgrace, the common suffering of the world. Should I be doing something different here, Stu, with the feedback? A little closer? Okay. It's bad enough these folks, poor folks have to listen to me. Never mind the feedback. Suffering is part of this world, right? So just get over it. Just get over it. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so you have common disgrace, the common suffering that all people suffer, but there is also suffering specifically related to our Christian faith as we walk as children of God and as we walk as strangers in this world. Christians are persecuted all over the world for following Christ. While Christian persecution takes many forms, it is defined as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Christ. The word persecution, our English Bible, it's a wide semantic range. It could mean anything concerning harassment because of beliefs or persecute. And in the New Testament, that happens with violence about, I'd say about 23 different times. You know, mem Jesus talks about family members killing other family members. There's references to killing and persecution in the same breath. And in Acts, persecution is linked with arrest, murder, physical violence. But there's reason to think that it's not just that word that we use as persecution in the translations of the Bible we use is not just limited, limited to extreme acts of persecution and oppression. In Matthew 5, 10, Jesus promises that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will be blessed. And in verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely. So again, we need to re retain a proper perspective that it's not always, number one, a result of sin, number two, because of our faith, all right, or number three, an extreme example of persecution, trial, or suffering. We need to retain a proper biblical perspective. Second Timothy 3.13, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. In one way or another. Subtle, not so subtle, family shame, being kicked off of college campuses, laws against sharing our faith, unjust trials, public mockery and scorn, arrest and brutality are a part of it. I've asked this question before. How many times is the word Christian used in the New Testament? No, it is used. Not once. Three times. Anybody remember how they're used? They first called Christians at Antioch, right? Where else? 
Remember when Paul stood before the court and he was defending the Christian faith? And the response was, hey, in a short while you will convince me to be a Christian? All right? So first in Antioch, it was actually a pejorative. It was actually a mockery. Oh, you're little Christs. All right? Because these people were reflecting the nature and character of the Lord Jesus. When Paul stood before the court and was defending the Christian faith, it was incredulous. And he was, it was hard to believe. And Paul was said, in a short while, you're going to convince me to be a Christian? Recognizing that there's a body of truth. But the third way, the third way the word Christian is used is in 1 Peter 4. Keep your finger there in Corinthians and turn over to 1 Peter 4, starting with verse 12. All right? Because Peter talks about persecution as well. So if you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, right, starting in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you, you know, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So again, this is common foundation. This is reality. There will, it will come. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you will rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, as opposed to foolishness or doing something wrong, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you, again, suffers as a meddler, thief, evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But, and here's where the third time the word Christian is used. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in his name. So, conformity to Christ, adhering to a certain body of beliefs and facts, suffering and being identified with Christ. That's the way the New Testament uses the word Christian. Christ's words are fulfilled. For followers of Christ, the picture is more sobering. The Bible actually promises us trials, hardship, persecution, and suffering for our faith. Now, you can honestly say that perhaps you've never suffered for your faith. You've always been very straightforward about the gospel. When you've been confronted with a sinful situation, you've been able to handle it in a gracious, gentle way, and people may have never railed against you. you know? So you've never suffered as a Christian. But there are some of you in this room who have been threatened with violence, with economic impact for your faith and for exercising your faith. So the degree is going to vary. But Jesus said in John 15, verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than a master, is he? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your word also. The first followers of Christ consistently experienced suffering for the sake of Jesus. In Jerusalem, Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Asia Minor, along with the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, the authors went through suffering, all of the apostles. Paul was quite explicit in saying this was to be expected of everyone, 2 Timothy 3.12. So, perspective. Today, in Islamic, Hindu, communist parts of the world, being a follower means, at best, losing your job, being rejected by your family. At worst, it can mean imprisonment, beating, and even death. These things are being experienced all over the world 
right now by our brothers and sisters in Christ. One source gave a number of martyrs on a daily basis. I want you to take a, take a guess at what the latest numbers are with regard to martyrs for the Christian faith in this day. Per day. Per day. 2,000, a bit high. Anybody else? Going once, going twice. 833. 833. Do we, do we have it good here in the States? You betcha. Wow. These trends make it... See, these trends that we're seeing in the world and bleeding over into our culture makes sense for many American Christians. Persecution only happens in faraway countries, right? Wrong. Christian persecution is happening right here at home, on our own soil. Many here are being attacked for their faith. While it might not be at the level of beheadings or burned down churches in other places of the world, it's a problem that's growing. Traditional Christians are facing increasing intolerance in this country through the fines, lawsuits, the jobs lost, and public disdain felt. Can you think of any public, publicly known instances or cases of Christian suffering and persecution to that extent? The bakeries, right? There's more than one. What else? Yep. Yep, the University in Los Excellent. Good example. There's been churches burned down. There have been churches burned down for a variety of reasons. And arson, not accidental. Arson, yes, right. Um, look at this quote by John MacArthur. Certainly not an unnecessary alarmist. Christians at the end of the 20th century are unlikely to face the kind of opposition Martin Luther did during the early part of the 16th century. It is also unlikely that most believers will ever face the imminent threat of martyrdom. However, I believe it is more difficult to make such assertions with certainty today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Conditions within our post-Christian culture and an unstable evangelical church are changing and declining so rapidly that believers need to be prepared and not get caught off guard when confronted with persecutions and various hardships. He wrote that in his book, The Power of Suffering, in 1995. So we're not going to minimize the extent to which traditional Christianity and traditional Christians are facing increasing intolerance in this country. The fines, the lawsuits, the job loss, public disdain, they're not figments of the imagination. No amount of public relations work is going to rescue the church from being thought of as backwards and bigoted. You can't out-nice our way, we can't out-justice our way into cultural acceptance. That will not happen. Only revival, a powerful moving of the Spirit of God, will see that happen. In 2008, the University of Toledo fired one of their staff members when she disagreed with the idea that gay marriage was a civil rights woman. Crystal Dixon, an African-American woman, African-American woman, 
She wrote an op-ed piece in the Toledo Free Press arguing that the gay rights movement should not be compared to the civil rights movement because she as a black woman did not get to choose her minority status, but she claimed homosexuals do. She was fired for that. Jack Phillips, the famous baker, you know what happened there in 2012. And not only was that the original instance, but there have been multiple charges against him. Thankfully, the Supreme Court uh, decided in favor of him. Elaine and Jonathan Huguenin were forced by a court in New Mexico to pay more than 6600 in fines in 2012 after they declined to use their business photography, Elaine photography, to photograph a lesbian commitment ceremony. High fines to punish Christians for remaining true to their conscience are becoming, becoming increasingly normal. The New York State Division of Human Rights has ruled that the Roman Catholic Church owners of an Albany area farm violated the civil rights of a lesbian couple when they decided to decline to host the couple's same-sex marriage ceremony in 2012. They were ordered to pay 10,000 in fines and an additional 3,000 in damages to the lesbian couple for mental pain and suffering. 15 miles from the home that Kim and I owned in New Jersey, what, uh, Walt Tutka, who was a substitute teacher in Phillipsburg, um, was suspended and eventually fired after giving a middle school student a copy of Gideon's New Testament in October of 2012. Tutka was holding a door for the student and made the comment, the first shall be last. Over the next few days, the student kept pestering Tutka and saying, hey, what does that mean? What does that mean? And Tutka said, well, it's in the Bible. And the kid said, I don't have a Bible. Tutka gave the kid his Bible. Was fired. Lengthy lawsuit. Five years later was finally reinstated. In 2013, the state of Oregon went after a little family bakery, again a bakery, of Aaron and Melissa Klein, when they declined to provide a wedding cake for a lesbian wedding. And again, these are not isolated incidents. This is orchestrated. They were fined by the state of Oregon a total of $144,000 for their refusal to violate the tenets of their faith. In 2013, anti-Christian campaigns, again, an orchestrated effort, had spread to Vermont, and a lesbian couple sued the Wildflower Inn under the state public accommodations law of 2011 after being told they could not have their wedding reception there. $10,000 fine settled the case. In 2014, Indianapolis Bakery, Randy and Trish McGath, same thing. Again, it was a setup. 2015, a Mennonite couple, Richard and Betty Odegaard, were forced to close their business in Des Moines, Iowa, after being charged by gay activists for their refusal to host a gay wedding in their wedding chapter, chapel. They had to pay out $5,000 in settlement plus additional court costs. They lost their livelihood. They had to close their chapel. 2015, small town Indiana Pizzeria, owned by a Christian family, closed its door after being terrorized by pro-homosexual bullies opposed to the family's religious values. In 2018, you may remember this, uh, Democrat... Uh, Maisie Hirano of Hawaii and Kamala Harris, Democrat of California, chose angry, negative, and pointed questions in an interview with Brian Busher, an Omaha-based lawyer 
nominated by President Trump to sit on the United States District Court, and they violated several federal laws and statutes by asking specific religious litmus questions. You know the problems of those people in public office who may have refused to authorize same-sex wedding certificates. These people stood up for themselves. If a Christian goes to a liberal college today, uh, they're in trouble. The college that Kim and I went to, the King's College, was threatened to have its accreditation revoked. The college my daughter went to, Gordon, was also threatened that way because of their beliefs, because of their statues. Public schools are hit as well. InterVarsity has been kicked off campus. Um, football coach in Washington placed on leave is saying a prayer. We're not being thrown into prison, but there are more than 300,000 churches in this country. The overwhelming majorities still call themselves Christian. It's legal to be a Christian. It's legal to proclaim Christ. It's legal to convert to Christianity. We don't want to miss all the things we have to be thankful for or to pretend that everyone is out to get us. But we do want to keep our eyes open. The next letter, R. Redeemer and suffering servant. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, you read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The triune God does not leave us alone to waddle in the mire of our suffering through trials, troubles, and tribulations, no matter how petty or how big they may be. Read, read that first line again. Let's just take a moment. Read it out. Read verse 3 again. Who is this? Who is this that sovereignly ordains that we should go through these things? Is it some malevolent dictator? Is it some hard ogre? Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus said, as recorded in John 15.20, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Not only has he ordained that we walk through these fires, the common ones of this world, and the ones specifically aimed at your faith. But he's going to walk with us. By the way, look at this passage again. Look at this passage. Our Heavenly Father is called what? What, what are the titles used here? What's the title? The Father of mercies. And what? What else? What's the other? God of all comfort. The Holy Spirit as comforter completes the fullness of the Trinity. You have the Trinity involved here. As the one who comes to you and I in the middle of our suffering and, and troubles and strengthens us 
and gives us courage and boldness, just as he did to Paul and the Corinthians. What you see in the letter to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago is the resource that you and I have today. Next letter, R. Reason for suffering. What? What are the reasons for suffering? Why does God, in his infathomable wisdom, why does he have us go through these things? Yes, Rick? That he would strengthen us. Good. Dan Jost. It's part of our sanctification. It's part of our being set apart. John Beale is scratching his chin back there. John, do you, you have a couple of reasons why God causes us to suffer? <laughs> Reason for suffering, brother. A commitment to truth. It's part of the testimony of God. He ordains that we should be the mouthpieces, the display, the expression, the manifestation of his truth, of his righteousness, of his holy standard. Wow. Joe Blair. Yeah. We suffer for him. Yeah. We can expect that. And it's, it's wild that that suffering is actually part of the sufferings of Christ, which I fully don't understand, except that he so identifies with us that not only is he not ashamed to call us his brethren, but he is willing to include our sufferings as his own. Yes. Suffering, suffering also causes us to need him. Causes us to need him. Excellent. Yeah. Look at this passage again. Look at this passage. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three through eleven. The first. The lesson of first love. Letter A. The lesson of first love. And I have totally forgotten that we had a uh, overhead here. <laughs> <laughs> got so caught up with this stuff. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> uh, Christ's words fulfilled. Perspective. Thankfully, you have these on your notes. You don't have to rely on, on this. All right. Here we go. The lesson of first love. We just noticed how Paul began this section. And that is by drawing our eyes to our Creator and Redeemer. He pronounces a blessing on God. Paul, who suffered all these things, right? The hardships, 
the day, night, and the deep, beatings, being left, you know, exposure to the, all of that stuff, he starts out by saying, blessed. He is expressing his love, his appreciation, his adoration of the God who is in charge of all this. And I think, brothers and sisters, that that is probably the primary issue that these troubles force us to go back to him. Well, when I was was at King's and I was working like three or four jobs at a time trying to support myself, I, I worked for this Jewish family. And I was, you know, witnessing to this one woman, lovely lady, um, about Christ and God's willingness to offer his son. And she said, well, hold it. Didn't, didn't God teach us through Abraham that child sacrifice was not, was not a good thing? That really wasn't the purpose there. While childhood sacrifice is horrible, you know, just terrible, what was the purpose of Abraham's test at Moriah with Isaac? Faith. Faith. It was, who do you love? Who do you love? Who's the delight of your heart? Is it your son? Are you trusting in me? Or are you trusting in your own ability to procreate? All right? It was a test of faith. It was a test of love. It was to allow Abraham to demonstrate where his ultimate love and affection lay. Was it his son or with his Lord? The Lord tests us to show us the object of our first love. Here's one example. Look at Deuteronomy. If you look at Deuteronomy 13.3, Deuteronomy 13.3 says, You shall not listen to the word of that false prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So I believe that one of the first things that God does in these trials, these sufferings, these persecutions, is to, one, refine our love and dedication and commitment and focus on him. Paul begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Letter B, we suffer and are comforted because, uh, so that we are used by our empathetic Savior who suffered on our behalf and gave us the privilege of comforting others. We're used of God to comfort others. Look at verse 4, 6, and 7 here. He comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You've gone through the pain and horror of a divorce. You've gone through the, the shame of an abortion. You've, you've, you've committed some sin, which is a shameful thing but you've seen and you've tasted the redemption and the forgiveness of Christ. You've gone through the sorrow of a lost child. You've had the ignominy of losing a job because of your faith. God equips us to be instruments of his redemptive love for others who go through the same thing. I am a very selfish, self-centered, self-satisfied person. And so are you. 
God uses these things to change your heart, my heart, our thinking, to grow within us in empathy for others. And not only the empathy, but the ability and willingness to help others through that. And the set of verses reminds us it's not just a limited, finite friend who can, who can understand so far, but the empathy of our great high priest is vast and fathomless. One thing everyone can appreciate is the ability of other people to identify with and understand our particular life situation, problem, experience, or suffering. But Hebrews 2.18 says, He himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Because of that, he is able to come to the aid of those who are also tempted. Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but what? One who has been tempted, tried in all ways like we are, yet without sin. We are extensions of his mercy through our suffering. Letter C. We suffer to find our comfort in him. Look at verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Sometimes it seems that life is full of trouble, inconvenience, and unendering resistance to a peace of mind. God's comfort is not like some partial dispensing at the end of the toothpaste tube when you're rolling it up and you're stretching it against the, the, the bathroom counter to try to get that last little bit out. and uh, That's not what it... You do that, so do I. You paid for it. But considerally, consider how liberally God gives us the righteousness of his son. Romans 8.32 you know, that, you know that verse, right? You know that verse. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not what? Freely with him give us all things. He's liberal. He's not going to hold things back. Letter D. We suffer to be in fellowship with Christ, but also with each other. Look at verse 7 and 11 there. Look at verse 7 and 11. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Verse 11. You also joining us in helping through our prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf of the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. There is a growth in the love, in the commitment, in the relationship, in the tenderness, in the fellowship between us when we share not only sympathy, the emotional expression, or empathy, where instead of just feeling sorry that your roof is leaking, in empathy we get up there with a hammer and nails or we borrow Joel Glantz's air gun and we, you know, we nail it down with you. And there's a building of the fellowship not only with Christ but with each other. Thomas Manton um, letter E, our next item. God ordains our suffering to cause us to grow in patience and endurance. Thomas Manton, that famous Puritan, 
said this, while all things are quiet and comfortable, we live by sense rather than faith, but the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. Warfare situations reveal successes and shortcomings. On August 2nd, 1990, the Iraqi army invaded and occupied Kuwait, which was met with international condemnation and brought immediate economic sanctions against Iraq by members of the UN Security Council. Together with the UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, President George H.W. Bush deployed US forces into Saudi Arabia and urged other countries, and I think there were like a total of 34, 35, to join in this effort to remedy the situation. An array of nations joined the coalition, forming the largest military alliance since World War II. In a two-month period, the Patriot and cruise missiles performed brilliantly, undermining the resolve of occupying forces and taking out important targets. When I worked at Hercules Powder, and of those of you who are involved in reloading or ammunitions, Hercules uh, is a manufacturer for public and also military use of gunpowder. Blue dot, green dot. And we made the Patriot missile charges. So these were solid propellants that were about three and a half foot long, and they were used to fuel the Patriot and the cruise missiles. And they were quite effective. The Dutch didn't think they were you know, so effective, but somehow they were very helpful. <laughs> but even though there were successes with the Patriot missiles and so many other parts of the deployment, there were failures. And on the base of that, improvements were made. The Christian life is one of constant warfare. John 17, Ephesians 6, God places us in difficult life situations to refine us and help us grow. God ordains our suffering to cause us to grow in patience and endurance. So James can say, consider it all what? joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and we're to let it have its perfect result that we may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we suffer finally, letter F, so that thanksgiving will be given to our sovereign Lord as he delivers us from these trials. Look also, look, look back there at uh, verse 11. Look back at verse 11. This is wild. And actually, go, go into the last part of verse 10. And he will yet deliver us. You also joining in, helping us through your prayers. And what's the purpose? So that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So the trials that you and I go to, through, God's purpose is is for a giving of thanks. And you think about the beginning of this passage. We're loving God, we're blessing Him, we're adoring Him, and it's resulting in verse 11 in the giving of thanks. Wow. 2 Corinthians 4, 15, and we'll get into that next week, Lord willing, as we take part two of suffering, where we'll, we will have the last two R's of our lesson. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says this, For all things are for your sakes. And why? So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people 
may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Next week, Lord willing, we'll continue with an examination of the reclamation of suffering and the response to suffering. So, I encourage you to think about this and this week ask yourself these five questions. One, what hardship are you facing? Two, what life-giving word from him must you remember? Number three, what input do wise friends give you through this time? Number four, how can you honestly wrestle your way toward trusting him? And number five, what should you and what will you do next? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your goodness that you do not leave us not only in our sins, but you've given us Christ to set us on that path to the celestial city. And Lord, I thank you for those trials that you have caused to come into our life, to make us like Christ, to cause us to love you more, to be able to empathize and help and be a blessing to others. Lord, we do pray that when we go through trials, it would result in your praise and thanksgiving to you, that we would not waste those trials, those persecutions, those difficulties, but instead they would rebound to your glory. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to meet here in peace, without persecution. We pray for those brothers and sisters in the world who do not have that. Oh Lord, that you would keep them faithful, that you would cause them to shine brightly. We look forward to the day when all of this will be past and we will rejoice in your presence absolutely unfettered and we praise you in the name of your son who gives us that freedom amen